Hi, everyone, and welcome to Low Stars Lending Leaders. This week, uh, I'm joined by Chuck Kane. Um, he is the SVP of the National Agency Division at FNF Family of Companies. Um, and he also hosts his own podcast, the FNF Unplugged Podcast. Uh, welcome to Low Stars Lending Leaders, Chuck. Thank you so much, Elena. Pleasure to be here and uh, pleasure to uh, uh, be here with your audience. Awesome. So we always like to start when we have another guest on that has a podcast. You know, tell us about how you got into podcasting and what your experience has been with it so far, what you love about it, um, any things that you don't love about it, um, and really your experience. Well, uh, I've been involved in podcasting now, I guess, for uh, it's been over two years. And, uh, uh, you know, I, it, and we've been very successful at FNF Unplugged with our podcast. Uh, we're well over 15,000 uh, uh, opens and listens. Uh, we have an international audience, people in India, people in Europe uh, routinely listen to our podcast. And uh, so we've been, we've been very happy with it. Um, I think that, um, you know, podcasting, what I like about podcasts is that um, uh, people can listen to a podcast in their car. They can listen to it at any time. If you're if you're sort of stuck in front of the video screen um, mm -hmm. to hear something, well, you're stuck in front of the video screen, and that could be your phone. In which case, mm -hmm. don't worry, you will lose your eyesight at a very young age. Um, but um, unless you have a huge phone, but uh, you know, you're sitting in front of your laptop or or your uh, your, your book or whatever it is uh, on which you uh, watch these things, and you're kind of stuck in a spot. Podcasting mm -hmm. that gives you that option. You can listen to it. You can start it. You can stop it in case you get caught in the middle of something. So uh, uh, I think it's a great format. I think also too that uh, and one thing which we've been complimented on is you can keep things crisp and current. Uh, mm -hmm. We turn our podcasts from the time they're recorded till the time they're posted. Uh, we can turn them in as short a time as 36 hours. Mm -hmm. And that includes compliance review and all the things that, you know, any company needs to do. So, um, you know, I think that's really critical. And, and that's something that podcasting gives you the ability to do. You can deliver uh, a presentation on a hot topic while the topic is hot. Um, you can mm -hmm. also build out a library of uh, things that are useful at any time. Uh, yeah. You know, how to build your, how to build your social media. You know, there's, there's certain things and, and we see people come back and listen to some of our podcasts repeatedly when we've got somebody who's an expert uh, yep. in regard to um, something which is uh, a day-to-day -day event, or they'll play it for other people in their office who say, well, I heard this. And they're like, oh, you're all wet. You have no idea what you're talking about. Well, listen to this guy. And, uh, you know, and, and we also uh, sort of build it out that uh, at FNF, uh, because we're the largest title insurance uh, underwriter in the country, and we've got the biggest agency network, that uh, it's, it's for our agents. I mean, that's the focus, but it does spill over into other areas of realty and lending in the entire industry. And uh, as to our guests, um, we sort of rotate them through. Um, we have people who are best in class in, in what they do to talk about uh, hot topics. Uh, we also have uh, a lot of our gifted FNF personnel, Mike Nolan, the president uh, of um, uh, FNF of Fidelity, uh, did a presentation and a podcast uh, that was highly listened to by our agents. And then we have our agents on and the agents talk about what they're doing. And, you know, and sometimes I think, and, and we've seen some of those podcasts be the most listened to because if you're a title agent, 
and you think, well, this guy's a title agent. Maybe he's got something to say. Maybe he's got an idea that I haven't thought of or an implementation that I haven't thought of or have not been able to accomplish. Um, so we get, we get a look, you know, and we, sorry, we sort of rotate that. So again, it stays pretty fresh. So I like it. You know, I've, uh, uh, for years, you know, people always in our industry, in the title industry, uh, want to send out newsletters. Um, uh, I uh, personally, and it's only a personal opinion, this does not represent uh, the position of FNF or anybody <laughs> else who works at FNF. I hate newsletters. And the reason I hate newsletters is not because they're a bad idea, but because just the reason I outline for podcasts, you send out a newsletter, you have to send it out routinely. Uh, you have to send it out on you know, weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever it is. Well, some weeks, there's a lot to talk about. And other weeks, not so much. And so, yeah. you're, you know, so you've got this newsletter where suddenly you're putting in brownie recipes and things to pad it out because you really don't have the content. With podcasting, you can deliver that content crisply quickly and if there's two or three two or three things to talk about in a week you can do two or three podcasts there's hot topics you can get them out there real fast uh we Mm -hmm. do uh i think one of the you know the challenges quite often with any content marketing is you got to do it you got to do it repeatedly and you have to do it routinely um you know, one thing which, again, we've heard from our listeners, it's like, well, you know, pretty much every week or 10 days, there's another podcast on a good topic. Um, you have to, to do that. You have to be out there routinely. If you skip two months, people forget about it and yep. they've moved yep. on to something else. Uh, we, you know, we, we live in a society with a shortened attention span. And uh, as uh, one of the people who did one of our podcasts uh, and, and as a friend of Brian Rieger's, uh, he's a leading um, uh, mortgage uh, banker out of Atlanta. And uh, he talked about his social media campaigns. And he said, yeah, you know, the problem with uh, when I send out something in social media, I'm not just competing with the other mortgage lenders in my marketplace. I'm competing with like a groundhog eating pizza. I'm competing with everything that takes people's time when they are going through, uh, again, they're on their laptop or they're uh, you know, going through their, their iPad or their, their book um, as to uh, all the other competition. And so podcasts, I think, give you the ability to sort of narrowly focus that. And so your target audience, and again, we send it out to all our F&F agents. Uh, whenever there's a new podcast posted, we've got the library, they can go back into it. It's been very successful and very happy with it. But yeah, I think that the challenge for any content uh, marketing is that you have to have good, solid, crisp, current content, and you got to do it all the time. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's it's not a matter, again, of doing it quarterly because, again, you'll, you'll, you'll lose people. They'll forget about you. Yeah, it's definitely... You know, consistency is key when it comes to content and it, it definitely showcases. Um, it's one of the biggest challenges, I think, as a marketing professional is just coming out with consistent content and making sure your brand stays relevant um, in the sphere you need to be because you are shouting into the void mm-hmm. um, when online. Because like you said, you know, Pizza Rat was a thing in yeah. New York and, you know, you're competing with Pizza Rat. So are you yeah. better than that? Um and of course, you have people that, you know, won't give pizza at the time of day and would much rather watch, you know, your podcast, but you've also got the reverse as well. Um, now, you've been in the industry for quite a while, or so I'm told. <laughs> um, 
you've run title agencies, uh, built affiliated arrangements, been in uh, executive positions with, you know, larger underwriters and all of that. Um, what is the single uh, biggest change you've seen in the mortgage real estate title industry since you started? Well, since I started, because at that point in time, uh, most legal documents were chiseled onto stone tablets. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So uh, then we moved on to papyrus and vellum and things like that. But, but seriously, again, I've been in the industry now over 40 years. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, the, this, the obvious and very single-minded uh, answer is technology. Um, you know, we still sort of do things the same way um, as far as title and settlement insofar as what is our role in the transaction. Now, that's expanded. That's changed. There are some additional changes there. But it used to be everything was typed like on selectric typewriters. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I remember when, you know, memory typewriters came out where you could uh, program six or eight items into the typewriter. So you didn't have to type the address de novo over and over again and possibly make a mistake because a mortgage note has to be a perfect document. If there's a mistake, you don't get to white it out. And so, um, uh, you know, and we had, you know, you know, I remember when, you know, fax machines, or as they were first called, thermofax machines, uh, came into being, and uh, it saved a lot of gasoline, so those people didn't have to drive things around all over uh, sort of hell's half acre to get documents signed, you could get faxed documents, but when those fax documents came out, you generally had to make a copy of it right away, because the faxes would fade over time. And so you had to, you know, sort of run to the copy machine to uh, do that. So, you know, I, I think, you know, and, and, and you know, obviously, you know, computers, uh, where we've gone. Um, and, and when I started again in the industry, you know, things didn't change quite as dramatically technologically other than what I've just outlined until we get to the end of the 90s. And you get into email and we get into uh, routine electronic production of documents. And whether they remain electronic or they get printed out into paper, that uh, you know, we saw a complete sea change there as far as uh, how that works. So, you know, and of course now the technology is so much more advanced. And, and as we work towards integrations with uh, with mortgage lenders from the title and settlement industry, uh, that um, uh, I think we're going to see more and more technological changes. Uh, as they come forward. I think also too, I know you asked me, you know, what's the biggest change? And again, that's for anybody who's been in the industry as long as I have, that's the, that's the big change. Um, but affiliated business arrangements, which I've been involved in since the mid nineties, um, when, you know, and that's about when they really started to advent was in the mid 1990s. And um, uh, you know, since then we see affiliated business become a major component uh, particularly in the residential area of title and settlement and, and title insurance uh, here in Ohio, where I'm based, based off of, you know, cobbling together numbers because there is no single place to go to uh, and say, well, okay, affiliated business represents X percentage of the residential closings in the state. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, for probably the last six to seven years, somewhere at least 35 to 40% of all residential transactions that close in Ohio, which is a pretty good sized state, flows through affiliated business arrangements. And those really didn't exist in the early 1990s. 
Um, and now we see ABAs where the ABA, as particularly in regards to realty, uh, the ABAs are really the source of the income. In fact, I was at the Inman Connect show in Las Vegas, and there was a discussion about how one real estate brokerage in Arizona, that if you utilize their uh, title and lending arms, that they would charge you no commission. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, that, that's, that's a dramatic change. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but that's where they make the money. That's where the broker yeah. makes the money. And so, so I think that, you know, that has been, that has certainly been a significant change uh, as well as to uh, how lending is done. When I started um, title insurance for residential transactions was pretty much only for FHA and VA loans. Mm -hmm. uh, conventional loans didn't take title insurance. You should took attorney's opinions. And as an attorney, I can tell you what those opinions are worth, especially a year after you issued them. Um, so, we, but we saw, you know, a big, big change. The FHA and VA market back in the 1980s was principally done through mortgage companies mm -hmm. uh, that worked nationally. The commercial banks weren't really that involved in mortgage lending uh, back in the 1980s. Thrifts, savings and loans, uh, as they were known, that was the dominant source of business in most areas of the country uh, for conventional lending. And in, in the Cincinnati uh, area, uh, I think we topped out uh, at about 160 savings and loans in the Cincinnati metro in the 1980s. So they controlled all the business uh, as far as the conventional lending, but they really didn't take title insurance very often. That's all changed. Uh, we title insurance is now due diligence for virtually any residential transaction. There are some out there that may not require it, um, but by and large, there has been that sea change um, as far as the commercial banks and the mortgage companies owned by commercial banks, such as Wells Fargo and Chase and people mm -hmm. like that, becoming very strong and large national players um, uh, in regard to residential uh, uh, lending. Yeah. No, I definitely see, you know, the industry is definitely growing. We see more and more different business types all the time. We talk to, it feels like a new type of bank. Uh, you know, I learn about a new one every day, it feels like <laughs> sometimes. Um, and then, you know, as someone who's been in the industry for a while, what would you say to a young title agent that's just starting out, that's looking to, you know, grow their business, grow their network? Um, what tips and tricks would you give them? Well, I think that, you know, if somebody were just starting out opening a title agency, um, first of all, figure out what does you want to do? Um, because title agencies, I've worked for with in boutique title agencies uh, where you had really three or four main customers. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then uh, large title agencies where you had uh, numerous customers and you were doing thousands of transactions. And so uh, you would look to do, uh, you know, you, you build your, your business around what is your customer base. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that um, um, that's uh, something that anybody would, who is interested in the business now, that's what they need to do. They need to decide how to do it. And again, it's technology driven. Everything you can do to build yourself out technologically, uh, as to social media as well, uh, you have to do it absolutely because that's where the business is going. And to swing back towards social media, you know, it's always hard to give advice to borrowers or to make connections online because, of course, we always have the compliance angle coming into it, right? Um, but what advice would you give 
for a title or a mortgage professional that are looking to get more into either podcast marketing, social media, just overall make their presence more known specifically to the consumer or to whoever their target audience is? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I think we are entering an age for title and settlement to really do marketing to consumers. We've talked mm -hmm. about it the entire time I've been in the industry, never good at it. Uh, we're a B2B industry and in, in part because no, most people don't know exactly what we do. In fact, yeah. many of our customers don't really know what we do. Um, and some of us don't really know what we're doing either. But uh, uh, I think that, uh, you know, there is that opportunity now to reach out. And I think, you know, with, with, you know, with the Biden administration, you know, fair lending and fair housing is a, a huge initiative in the mm -hmm. Biden administration and by all aspects uh, through the various bureaus, through HUD, um, uh, obviously the MBA with their convergence program. And I think that's an opportunity to you know, be engaged um, mm -hmm. in things like the convergence program and the convergence toolkit, which if you're an MBA member, you can uh, get into. But uh, consumers, and we've seen this, you know, nobody goes to a restaurant anymore. I don't go to a restaurant anymore until I look on site, even if I've been to the restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, I look on site as to reviews and comments. And if it's a restaurant I've never been to, I do that. So it's like, well, what do people seem to like? Or what do they say? My God, don't order this. Um, so, uh, and, and I think that's something too, where you can build out your consumer base you know, if you're do if you're if you're involved, particularly in fair lending and fair housing initiatives, if you're working with various groups to get people into houses in your community, you know, advertise that, make a point of it, because mm -hmm. consumers care about that. Yeah. And then if you can get some reviews posted, it's like, well, you know, first time I ever bought a house, you know, modest home. I mean, here, you know, between the mountains, we still buy houses for you know under six figures. And uh, it's like, you know, the, the people, they helped me, they explained things, they were, you know, great. That sort of a review is going to be viewed by consumers who are going to tell their real estate agent or broker, tell their lender, hey, I'd like to work with this title agency, because they seem to know what they're doing and they seem to care because mm -hmm. I was online taking a look at yeah. title agencies in the area. And by the way, the one you mentioned, I don't see anything on their website that mm -hmm. leads me in that direction. Uh, so I think, you know, building that out, I think, is going to be critical in these upcoming years. And it's not just a, a political issue. I mean, you know, when, you, when you get into things like redlining and fair housing, the Trump administration was very much involved in investigations mm -hmm. of redlining and fair housing violations. So this is not, you know, a Republican or Democrat or whoever's in the White House. This is where things are going. And as the MBA mm -hmm. has pointed out, the growth in uh, the residential marketplace Virtually all the growth between 2020 and 2040, 2040 will take place by, in minority communities. Yep. It's, it's not going to be, and it's like the census shows it quite clearly. It's mm -hmm. like there aren't going to be as many people who look like me, <laughs> and uh, there aren't right now. Mm -hmm. But there's more and more people um, who are minorities in this country um, who are just getting into housing and helping them get into housing. I think it's a win-win for everybody. And again, I think it's something where you can really build things out uh, in your social media and your marketing that, well, this is something that we're known for. You know, we, we care about people. And that's, I think, our industry, I think, really is famous for that, is that, you know, we put people in homes uh, is what we do. 
And so, uh, you know, whether it's refinancing so they can afford to stay there uh, or it's to buy a home, whatever it is, that's what we do in the, on the residential side of things. And the more we can stress that, I think Alta's new programs, I think, are very good. I think they've really spruced them up incredibly uh, as to the value of title insurance and, and the settlement process and what do we do so it's not this mystery of, you know, and I can't tell you the number of times that I've been asked when I've been at the closing table and I've sat at the closing table probably 15,000 times where very sophisticated buyers will turn to me and it's like, now, why are exactly are you here? Yeah. And, and what is it that you do? And then I explain to them and they're like, there's like an industry for that. And um, it's like, oh yeah, it's a big industry. And uh, so you know, I think those are all things that uh, you know, moving forward here, I think there, there's that opportunity to reach out to consumers. And again, to your, your question about, you know, someone just starting out, um, uh, there's uh, the, uh, the book, uh, Blue Ocean Culture, that was uh, written a few years ago. And it's like, well, if you compete, you know, and what in that book is described as the red ocean, uh, mm-hmm. and you're competing with everybody for that same niche of business, well, you're going to have a hard time of it. But there's plenty of other ocean that's blue ocean where there's no one there. And how can you distinguish yourself and differentiate yourself from everybody else mm-hmm. so that, yes, we are a little different. You know, look at our website. We're not. We, you know, we explain what our culture is. We explain who our people are. Um, you can, you know, we have uh, uh, information and, and content on the site uh, for consumers so they can understand what the process is, what the concerns are of little things like wire fraud um, and mm-hmm. how to avoid this. Um, so, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, as we go forward here in time, I think that's a real opportunity, uh, to, uh, you know, to reach out and establish that. And if everybody else in your marketplace is doing the same old, same old, you're going to be in the blue ocean. They're all going to be in the red ocean fighting the same way for the same things. Yeah. As, uh, our, our CEO is, says quite often the right thing to do is often the most profitable thing to do as well. Uh hmm Oh, it's, yeah. It just makes a lot of sense. And, you know, at the end of the day, to do the right thing in this situation is to, you know, promote those yeah. programs and provide those services, um, which can be very uh, impactful in the community. Now, since this is going to be one of our end of the year podcasts, as we kind of go yeah. and wrap up 2022 or 2021, and we go into 2022, <laughs> um, for some reason, I can't get my years right. Uh, too many twos, I guess. I, I still think it's the 1900s, so that's all right. <laughs> um, what do you see as the biggest thing that will impact the industry uh, next year? And what do you think that people are expecting it to be that it won't be? Well, I think, and we've seen it here just in the last few weeks, but it's been building. Um, I think we are going to see a hugely dramatic shift in the nature of the real estate business and real estate industry. When I say that, I mean realty. Um, you know, we just saw at properties acquire Christie's International. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing more and more changes there. And that traditional realty model and in most of our marketplaces in the United States, real estate agents and brokers are the source of business. 
mm-hmm. or the principal source of business in the residential scheme. Um, that probably isn't going to change. But the nature of those companies has changed and it's going to continue to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't find a Redfin office to stop in and drop off bagels to. And, you know, it's like, yeah. and, you know, and, you know, they've built that into, I think the last I saw, the fifth largest real estate company in the country. So, you know, and, and all the, uh, the real estate uh, agents are employees. Um, you know, it's, it's, these are very, very different models. And I think we're going to see dramatic shifts in 2022 in the realty industry. We're going to see a lot of consolidation. Um, I think that, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the tr- those traditional models and, and how people buy houses has changed, but those traditional mm-hmm. models are going to, are, are going to branch out. And, you know, it used to be that, um, even eight or 10 years ago, you know, how'd you buy a house? Well, I, you know, I got in my, I got in my agent's car and we drove around to 16 houses. And then we came back and put an offer on the first one we saw. And, uh, you know, it's the same sort of process. Well, now there's a variety of experience for mm-hmm. consumers. And uh, Brad Inman has talked about that. Uh, well, certainly uh, give him the side on it, that uh, it's like buying a, uh, a, a stock. You can do it entirely online if you want. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the Redfin model. It's like, well, you may never meet your real estate agent, or if you do, it's you know once or twice. Uh, you're really doing it principally yourself. Or there's a blend. Uh, Compass and EXP have some of that blend, um, where you know. And he said, you know, that's sort of the Charles Schwab model. If you handle how much advice do you want, well, you can get it, but you don't have to have it. Mm-hmm. Or you've got the traditional model, where you drive around looking at sixteen houses, and. Uh, so consumers had those choices. Mm-hmm. Likewise for closing, you know, one of the things which, you know, and, and you know, we, we hear and have heard for the last few years, there's always some hot thing that is going to completely and dramatically change the title and settlement industry. Um, you know, blockchain was going to do everything, including toast bread and butter mm-hmm. it and feed it to us. Um, I, you know, blockchain has returned as to what it, functionally does as an archival system at this point. But, you know, blockchain was going to, to you know, end the title insurance industry as we know it, you know, three, three years ago and mm-hmm. uh, didn't happen. Um, you know, bef- just as COVID was starting, you know, remote online notary um, was really starting to get traction. Texas had passed their law in 19, which sort of, I think, is sort of a model for a lot of other states. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's certainly demand for remote online notarization, but it wasn't this tidal wave of demand that some people thought it was going to be, even with COVID, mm-hmm. where people didn't want to do it. And, and, you know, and it boiled down in many places, particularly here in the Midwest, to what I call the sonic drive-in business model, where you come in you, in your car, and then you text or call or, or let people know you're yeah. sitting in the car, and then people come out to you with the documents. And you sign the documents, and I don't do them on roller skates, but you know they probably could have, um, you know. And uh, then off you go. It's uh, uh, so, but Ron didn't overwhelmingly change things. We will see Ron continue to grow. Um, also, too, Ron wasn't as simple, I think, as a lot of people presumed it to be. And there's very good reasons why it's not as simple for security reasons that need to go on yeah. uh, in regard to remote online notary. But, you know, that was, 
you know, that was going to be, oh, we're going to change everything. I'm going to have 50% of our loans close via Ron. Um, in the attorney states, I can tell you, and I've admitted to practice in Kentucky, just for one, the attorneys were all up in arms like, oh, my Lord, this is the end of civilization as we know it. Um, uh, and it's not the case. But mm -hmm. consumers want that. They may want a Ron transaction, be willing to pay for it, for any additional charges that come into play. They've got the technology to do it. Um, uh, they may want to have some blend, some, you know, some uh, 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 just electronic closing uh, where a notary may come to them, but it's all, it's all electronic documents. And then it may be traditional where there's still some paper. And part yeah. of that has to do with the lenders and, who, and how the lenders are prepared uh, to do this. Um, I think we'll see more and more lenders, even community lenders, credit unions and, and such, um, able to do fully electronic transactions. I think into 2022, we're going to see more and more trend in that direction, even from smaller lenders, because they just they can't afford to do it the old way. And yeah. there's no reason to do it the old way. And consumers don't want it. It's like, really, I got to drive across town at four o'clock in the afternoon to sign documents to refinance my house. I just bought a car online. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, that was, they cost more than what I'm refinancing for. Um, so, and so uh, it's like, why do I have to do this? Um, and it's not just, you know, everybody blames the millennials. It's, oh, well, it's the millennials, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, you can't, can't trust them any farther to even throw them. Um, but it's people who are 75, 80 years old. And it's like, I don't want to drive over there. I don't want to drive, you know, if you're in a major metro area, if you're in Chicago or DC to drive across town at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, take your life in your hands and it's going to take hours. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want it. They want to be able to do it from the comfort of their home. So I think that, you know, we will see, we'll see growth there, but you know, quite often it is uh, what is foretold does not occur. But I, I think the changes in the realty model are going to be very dramatic in 2022 as to how real estate companies are run. And if more and more companies move towards an employee model, that's going to really change how the source of business with real estate agents comes into play. Because under RESPA, not in every state, but under RESPA, uh, an employee can be paid something in regard to a referral to an affiliated entity. Now, affiliated title agency can't pay the real estate agent for the transaction, but that broker can certainly pay a bonus if they mm -hmm. choose to. They've been paying their they've been paying their managers who are employees for years uh, for sale of title, for lending, for home warranty, a whole variety of things. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's clearly legal under federal law and under most states. Um, that changes everything. If you're an independent title agent and uh, you're used to getting somebody's business, they're like, well, yeah, but, you know, the more I send over to brand X over here, mm -hmm. um, the more money goes into my pocket. So I think that's going to be a challenge. I think also, too, that uh, something we're going to see in 2022 that's really accelerating and has already begun is that lenders, uh, they are reaching out to do quality assurance in real time in the transaction. And so to be able to do that QA and QC from the time the loan application is taken till the transaction goes to fund and disperse. So the loan is sellable the next day. You don't, and that's, that is going to grow exponentially, I think, in 2022. And a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, lenders, the MBA was reporting, I guess, in 2018, 2019, 
It costs lenders about $9,000 to originate a loan. And they're clearing three or 400 bucks on the actual origination, not the sale, but on the origination. Well, during COVID, that all changed, partly because of the refi purchase mix. But suddenly now that cost dropped to $7,000 and they were making two to 3,000. Mm-hmm. On those transactions, they don't want to go back to that nine thousand dollars, you know, and clear four hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. They're not going back to that, and that's what this enables them to do. For the title and settlement world, the good news is, and we've all experienced, and I used to experience it for years. You know, six weeks after you close, the lender comes back and says, "Well, you know, this document, the guy did to sign it the right way. Can you go find him and have him sign what is probably a disclosure?" Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even a legal document. Can you go get them to sign that? Well, that sucks the profit right out of a title file, out of a settlement file. And if it's the seller, you got to find good luck. They probably moved to Manila and you're never going to find. It. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, that starts to go away because yep. they've QC'd that loan. And so you don't hear from people six weeks later, that loan has been sold. It's gone. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as we wrap up, we always like to ask people, uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets you excited about your job? Well, coffee gets me out of bed. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, but well, let's but get I, honest. <laughs> yeah, but I think that, uh, um, you know, the thing about this industry that's great are the people who are in the industry. And that the people who are in the title and settlement industry are always looking for innovative ways to do things. There's always somebody, it may not be the whole group in a given marketplace, but there's always somebody who is like, well, you know, I think we can do it better. I think we do it a more, a better way with a better customer experience and better consumer experience. And, you know, I think that uh, that's the one thing about this industry is that uh, and it's been true every place I've worked. It's great people and it's people who care about other people. Uh, they don't always get the recognition for it, but uh, but they do care, and they care about getting people into homes. And uh, I think that's I think it's it's a very virtuous industry. We don't play up that end of it quite so much. Um, and uh, and of course, it's a very critical industry because we assure people that they are getting clear title. And as yeah. the uh, Latin American economist Fernando de Soto says, the clear and free. Uh, alienation of real estate is the basis of the wealth of the United States. Well, that's what we do. We we ensure that it's a clear title. Um, and you only have to talk to people from other countries. Again, we have listeners in India, and I have talked to people in India. To buy a piece of commercial property in India takes a year and a half. Oh. And the major problems are the title, because you yeah. can't get insurance in regard to it. And India has essentially, uh, you know, the same type of legal system we have. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a, a huge thing that we help people close on houses every day. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, where can people find you, Chuck? Where they can find me? Um, yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm here in Cincinnati when I'm not on the road, it's probably uh, the, um, um, uh, you know, the common places to find me at Concourse B at the Atlanta Hartsfield Airport. But um, you can find me at uh, charles.kane, that's C-A-I-N, um, at FNF.com. Um, and I do give out my phone number. It's 513-543-4545. That number started as a car phone in 1983. 
Um, and again, 513-543-4545 at charles.kane at fnf.com if there's anything I can do to assist them because that's my job is to assist our title agents from all around the United States. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for joining us. And thank, thank you to everyone who's listened today and we hope uh, to, we look forward to seeing you next week. Great. Thank you. My pleasure.